0: The ESG Decoded podcast celebrates Black History Month and recognizes the contributions and achievements made by those across the African diaspora. We want to highlight a previous episode in honor of an African-American leader driving transformation in the ESG space. We look forward to a day when leadership across the business world reflects the diversity of the global community. Climco, which powers this podcast, believes that supporting Black History Month, aligns with its core values, particularly that of stewardship. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI, is integral to our culture, encouraging all employees to use their unique perspectives, experiences, and ideas to help advance business outcomes and foster a culture where everyone feels their viewpoint is valued. Enjoy this episode.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen. And today we are really excited to have a governance-focused episode. So we often talk about the E and ESG, the S and ESG, but rarely do we do an episode focused on the G in ESG. In order to excel in today's competitive business environment, a successful ES and G leader does need a balance of compliance, sustainability, and project management skills backed by robust policy design expertise. That's why I've invited Dr. Monique Cunningham to join us today. She is the rare professional with experience across the ENG of ESG, with over 15 years experience leading strategic ESG projects for multiple high-profile organizations, including St. Thomas University and the City of Tallahassee. In addition to her vast professional experience as a risk management and compliance professional, Dr. Cunningham holds a doctorate in law and policy from Northeastern an MBA from Nova Southeastern University, and a bachelor's in biology from Barry University. Dr. Cunningham, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you for having me today. I'm so grateful to have you on. I know that this has been a long time coming. We've been trying to plan this one, and I'm so, so grateful to finally have you. Monique, Dr. Cunningham is joining us from Fort Lauderdale. Is it sunny there today?
2: (laughs) It actually is. We had an, you know, quote unquote, cold front, which which only removed the humidity and allowed it to be breezy. So it's one of those um, Chamber of Commerce days today where it's beautiful sunshine, good breeze, and what everyone would consider down here as a beach day.
1: Awesome. Well, I hope you uh, get to hit it later, maybe maybe not for your fear and dizzy with work. But I wanted to start today uh, with a fun question for you. So you're a doctor, you hold a doctorate in law and policy, and not very many people have PhDs, mainly because of the dissertation from what I hear. And I know that it's something that you spent many years of your life on. And so I always like to ask folks that do have PhDs what their dissertation was. And yours is very related to the topics at hand. So I was wondering if you could start by sharing a little bit about your dissertation.
2: So, yes, it was a fun experience deciding to go back to school to obtain my doctorate. My dissertation actually focused on Florida and the Clean Power Plan. And even though I knew the Clean Power Plan wasn't going to go anywhere in the stage that it was in, I wanted to better understand the policy ramifications behind that proposed regulation coming from the EPA and understanding what the negative aspects were of it, as well as any of the positive aspects of it, and see really how it was going to impact states like Florida, and then create a baseline of, okay, if this is how we can structure it for Florida, how can this be modified to other states like, you know, Massachusetts, or South Carolina, North Carolina, or other, you know, just states, or even Montana. How can we modify and do a scenario-based analysis of, you know, reducing emissions that are particular for the way that the state is, the makeup of the state based on their energy profile. So what I did is, you know, using my MBA background in economics, I decided to focus on the environmental economics, using that as the baseline for my study, and then understanding the legal aspects of the Clean Power Plan, and then making a policy recommendation at the end. And I decided to approach it as any other risk that we want to mitigate. We voluntarily purchase, or maybe not always voluntarily, but we purchase health insurance, auto insurance, homeowners insurance, but we do not, whenever we think of climate, it's with this negative connotation of, well, there's gonna be a climate tax and we're gonna be taxed. Well, I looked at it as, why won't we provide an insurance policy for what we are all experiencing? and in the dissertation you know like i wrote about like how the department of defense did a study that said climate is one of the biggest things that will cause disturbance around the world and cause different communities to have to flee and look for resources that allow them to be able to survive and support their families and so using that as a jumping off point i wrote about bangladesh And, you know, like we always think about, well, this is something that impacts communities outside of the US. And they said, yes, this is something that does impact communities outside of the US, but let's look at what's impacting here at home. And so I wrote about the Isle de Jean Charles, which is a island south of Louisiana, and like how the, this community is one of the first US climate refugees and how the Department of Housing and Urban Development has awarded the community $48 million to relocate to another part of the US because the Army Corps of Engineers has decided that their island is not salvageable due to years of dredging and just the rising seas. Then, you know, Uh bringing it closer to home. What's happening here in South Florida? I grew up here in South Florida and I remember as a child, I never had to worry about or even thought about flooding and sea level rise. That was something that was in the far future. Here as an adult, being a chemist when I first started and driving around to other, to areas throughout Broward County in South Florida and collecting water samples, It became more and more of a talking point because we were seeing issues where salt water was going into the freshwater areas causing that to change chemically right and trying to figure out like okay what can we do here in south florida to mitigate against this risk well we have now what are king tide floods and we've always had them but now you have like a day today where we have a chamber of commerce date it's beautiful and sunny and you know, if it, when it's later on in the year in September and October, you will be walking and if it's in the middle of a king tide flood moment, you're walking through certain streets in downtown and you're like, Why is the water above my ankle? What is going on here? Wow.
1: Wow. And is that called sunny sunny day floods? I've also heard it called.
2: Yes, sunny day floods. The sunny there, day flooding, yeah. We've had no rain for days and all of a sudden the streets are flooded because wow uh, Water has now come in through storm drains. You think of it as Swiss cheese, it has lots of holes in it. It's great for water filtration and where we get our drinking water. It goes into the aquifer, it filters down and we have wonderful drinking water. But when it goes in the opposite direction, water now goes back up through that Swiss cheese and is now in the streets. And so it we're now having to spend money billions and billions of dollars every year to mitigate against that risk. And what can we do? Why not put it in an insurance fund so that way communities are paying, you know, a nominal cost to a fund to be able to pull out of that fund and pay for climate resiliency projects. It's things that we're doing anyways. But we're always doing it as an emergency, and why not do it with more planning and foresight so that way we can really address what's happening now? It's not something that's in the future, like when we're here. Yeah. It's happening now. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing
1: that. And, and in your dissertation, I'm kind of sitting here chuckling to myself because I was like, this is an episode about governance. <laughs> but... But this is governance, right? This is how do we how do we manage these risks? And with your policy background, there's such a rich discussion there. So I promise that we will get to governance in a minute, but I just to to wrap this part of the conversation at Monique. So what was your recommendation
2: in your dissertation? Is anyone doing it yet? There's some communities here and there that are addressing it in varying ways, going after the pollutant themselves. So going after, Electric utilities to pay into a fund, or the oil and gas industry to pay into a fund to address um, what's happening within their communities, and it's all tied into the governance aspect of it. If we don't address what's happening now environmentally and socially, then we're not doing our part as a community. And so it's looking at you know the government and the private organizations or public organizations to say, okay, we have these issues that we are experiencing. If you're going to set up shop in this community, what are you doing as an organization to address the environmental and social issues that are impacting the community in which you're operating out of? My policy recommendation at the end was, we need to pay into this fund. We need to develop a fund either um, locally at the local government level or at the state level and really focus in on addressing these issues because communities no longer have the time. Look at Isle de Jean Charles. They've been told we are not putting any more money into your community. Those of you that have remained, you you can remain and deal with what's happening to your island or we have this land that we are willing to relocate you to. And if we continue acting as if this is not something that needs to be addressed, South Florida is potentially the next community where they're going to look at us and go, "Okay, well, everything east of I ninety five. What is your plan? Time for you to relocate, or even communities near the Everglades. What is your plan? It's time for you to relocate." I really appreciate er, having you
1: discuss this because. Even though we initially set out to do an episode about the G for for companies, ESG, I think this is a really, it's a sobering discussion that directly from the communities that are experiencing this and, you know, folks on the pod know, I'm a Houstonian, South Florida, a lot of us are already seeing that, you know, it is happening right now and, and what can we do to mitigate the risk now and into the future. So I really appreciate you starting with this Monique and taking us a little bit through the, the dissertation and the research you've done. But let's, let's switch gears to the promised topic here. (laughs) I got a question recently at a workshop I was doing for a client, which was how do the ES and G relate? Right. And this is something you and I have talked about at length that the G's foundational governance is foundational to all of this. So. Let's start there. You're a governance professional, even though you have E and S expertise, your day job, you're really doing a lot of governance related work. So let's, let's start Monique by talking a little bit about the link between compliance and governance.
2: Yes. So governance and compliance are linked and you need proper oversight over in the governance arena in order to properly address environmental and social issues. And so ESG is a long journey that requires multiple stakeholders within any organization, and this can be a government entity, private organization, whichever model you're looking at, but it requires multiple stakeholders. This doesn't fall under you know, someone with the compliance title, and it's like, all right, well, you let us know how things are going over on that end, and and we sign off on the disclosure at the end of the year and go, (laughs) yay, we all did it, right? It's a genuine component that is interwoven into the day-to-day operations of any organization. And the oversight implementation has to um, involve everyone from the top down, down up. And the governance is the policies, it's the compliance. It's going beyond compliance. It's saying, okay, as leadership, what are the policies that we're going to say or company or will establish and enact and make sure that we are addressing each one of these things. And so when I look at any governance program and the policies needed, I pull in key stakeholders throughout every single part of the process. And so some of the things that I've done is, you know, when our city manager asked for us to green the government and to establish more policies that allowed us to reduce our waste throughout the government, I pulled in naturally in my mind, let me have a conversation with procurement and accounting. So that way we can figure out what is it that they're purchasing so we can reduce what's coming into the just into the city. And then let me establish more refined, more encompassing recycling programs. So the things that we do get that we're we've already reduced what could potentially be waste, but then what we do generate as waste, can we recycle that? You know, implementing programs like that.
1: Was this at City of Tallahassee, just to clarify? You said at the city? Okay. At the yes. city
2: of Tallahassee, Florida. At Tallahassee, yeah. Okay. And we were able to establish a program where, you know, um, we were able, within city hall, increase our recycling rate, but also decrease what was coming in that would be considered as waste, looking at every um, stream of items coming in from paper to electronics, Right. Another thing that organizations organization should also look at is, in the environmental area, greenhouse emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and how does greenhouse gas directly impact that organization versus the operations to what is purchased for operations? The, the difference between the scope one and scope two emissions is of, that greenhouse, gases. of yeah. greenhouse gases. And, you know, depending on the organization, that internal stakeholder will differ. Right For for a city of Tallahassee, we owned our own electric utility. So for the electric utility, we needed to make sure that what we were emitting, we reduced. What were the, you know, field times, processes that we could do to reduce our emissions? But when you're looking at it from another side of the organization and you're saying, okay, City Hall, Purchasing, yes, from our own utility, but what does that look like for us to reduce the amount that we need to purchase from our own utility? And, you know, organizations have to look at, okay, how do we operate and how can we reduce? Is it through a scope one lens or through a scope two lens? And then establishing the policies that oversee that, you know, what I couldn't have done a lot of what I do without that support from leadership. And, you know, when I worked in government, it's from the commissioners and the mayor and city manager's office, right? But person that's now worked in nonprofit arena for several years, it's working with our leadership staff, our board to ensure that we're establishing policies that look at these things holistically and look at how all of our policies intertwine and impact each other. So that way we are meeting targets that we're setting, but identifying where where are we now? What's our baseline? And where can we go? And can we push that envelope just a little bit more to even go beyond our comfort level and setting those targets in the future, but then have, having that rooted in policy. Um, so that way we can make sure that everyone understands what the role is, what the issues are, where we're going, but also under doing the training so that way they understand like this is how we're navigating through the world now
1: this is a perfect example and the way you're explaining it is is makes so much sense to me because it's all about you know in any organization whether it's city government and nonprofit or a private company or financial institution right whatever entity you're talking about activities in companies are are governed or should in in theory be governed by policies and procedures and not that every single every single thing in the weeds needs to be but at a high level right the policies and procedures that everyone agrees on as priorities are it's a way to prioritize and it's a way to make sure that everyone's heading in the same direction so I, I love the this example right and and how at the beginning, you mentioned, you know, bringing in procurement and accounting uh, that oversees the the contracts that of what's already purchased, right? And that multi-stakeholder approach across the organization to kind of get everyone on the same page. And then either that's driven by a policy, or it's if it, if it's not driven by a policy yet, you're putting in a policy at the end of that discovery period to to make sure that everyone is kind of rowing the boat in the same direction.
0: Definitely,
2: definitely. And it even ties to a lot of the social issues. I often, I sit in meetings where we are discussing, we want to establish a, and so let's invite these individuals to the table. And I'm the person that looks at the the invited list. and They go, I don't see women. I don't see individuals of color as a woman of color. I'm looking for others other than me to join as part of the discussion because we're not monolithic, right? And so you need to have different individuals at the table discussing these policy issues and addressing the policy issues because I may have experienced it one way, but I'm looking at it from a view lens that may be different than someone that, you know, another woman of color or just another female or a male of color experienced growing up, you know, in West Palm Beach, you know, we're going to, our viewpoints, our experiences are different. We're not monolithic. And so having multiple individuals sitting at the table, looking at what we're trying to accomplish, identifying what is feasible in a policy recommendation. And really going through and having fruitful discussions so that way, when we roll out something, individuals are not looking at it and going, uh, no, this is, <laughs> no, this does not address half of what we need to, you know, you want to aim to do as much as you can and represent as many people as you can, knowing that you're never going to get to hundred percent, but like, can we get to like 70, 80% and really meeting the needs of the community as a whole?
1: Mm-hmm. I I think we could draw a parallel too, to corporate governance and that's one of the reasons there's such a big push for diversity right now on boards and partic- boards especially but also at management levels because it it captures the wide variety of human experience and it's rare that the company who's who's not impacting all people.
2: <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like when you are a company, you know, here in South Florida, we have, we're a melting pot of a lot of cultures, right? But when you look at a certain, any organization within South Florida and you only see a certain demographic there, then it's not representation of the community in which you are running your organization in. And so then how... How true is it that you are on the pulse of what your organization can be doing? Because if you're not, ha- if the if you're in the if you're in a community, or you're operating an office within a community, that office should be reflective. And those that are sitting on the board and in leadership meetings should represent the community in which you're operating out of. Right? Women make up about fifty percent of of the planet, and we need to be represented. Yeah. Well, I and mean, what's so
1: funny, I just made me think of this is that for a very long time now, when we're talking about multinational corporations operating abroad in developing countries, there's a concept called local content, which means making sure that, you know, a, a healthy percentage of your hires are local, your management hires are local, that are folks that you're training up uh, to be part of that company, so you're not just, you know, flying in expats to run something in Equatorial exactly. Guinea or wherever. <laughs> but we don't, we don't always think about that here in in our own backyard, right? Well, yeah, it's the same thing, right? You want to make sure, yeah, yeah, that you have folks that understand the the operating environment uh, are the folks that live in the community,
2: right? And it's just. Yeah, the traffic of of South Florida and the woes of traveling on I ninety five. If nothing else, then for that, <laughs> worth that um, alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, let's switch gears to career because I know a lot of our listeners are interested in pursuing careers in ES and G. They are interested in the different types of professional education that could help them in this path. and you have a very unique, uh, really a unique career and as a compliance professional, but also you know with an environmental professional. So there's a couple of qualifications I thought we might mention and just talk briefly about. One is your certified compliance and ethics professional uh, certificate and then your uh, or credential, I guess. And the second is the Certified Environmental and Safety Compliance Officer with the National Registry of Environmental Professionals, and we'll include the links to that in the resource boost for the episode. But if you could talk a little bit about those, I know those have been important to you, and you know, obviously, you're extremely well educated. You're a PhD for Northeastern and your an MBA and everything, but
2: those had come up as useful credentials for you. Could you speak a little bit to that? When I was overseeing a lot more of the environmental area within my career, I sought and obtained certification as a certified environmental safety compliance officer. And that just allowed me to showcase that not only am I working in this arena, but I've, you know, provided the necessary skill sets to indicate that I can look at things holistically in the environmental and safety arena, in environmental health and safety within any organization, and making sure that not only do I understand the policies that are required to run an environmental health and safety program, but I understand what the components are to operate an environmental health and safety program. Later on, after my doctorate at Northeastern, I stumbled across a compliance and ethics board uh, for certified compliance and ethics professionals. And that actually is not an easy exam to sit for because you have to also showcase that you've been working in compliance for X amount of years. You have to undergo several classes even before you are able to sit for that exam, but I'm grateful that I did do it because right now in ESG, there's been a lot of conversation about where should ESG fall under And, and, and there's a lot of discussion that, well, since compliance professionals already are used to working across the board with different stakeholders, they're used to testing and measuring and making policy recommendations, ESG should fall under compliance, right? And so me having this certification, I'm able to look at it really with the lens of governance, holistically, I guess I have a strong environmental and social background, but with that professional certification, I'm able to go, okay, how is this going to impact the board? How do I communicate this to our board? How do I communicate this on a regular basis to our to everyone else in the leadership team, and be able to showcase where we are, what I'm monitoring, and how I'm mitigating those risks, and monitoring those risks on a regular basis, and then be able to publish an annual report to our leadership and to our board and to you know any external stakeholder. And so those certifications help to say like, okay. Not only is she doing it, but there's a lot of training and ongoing training that shows that I'm able to implement all of this on a regular basis because I sit through a lot of CEUs annually to maintain my professional certifications. Cause I truly believe that they help with even bringing topics to the table where I go, oh, I, I see that in the lens and where I'm working. Um, right now and let me apply it. So it's they're great certifications to obtain as you continue going through the trajectory.
1: I thank you so much for sharing that Monique. I think it's always really helpful. I mean, we see there's programs everywhere for everything, right, but which ones are really helpful for your career where you truly get something out of it? And I think it sounds like these have been really, really great for you, especially those certified compliance and ethics. Credential and just to clarify, CEUs the continuing education units, I guess, is that that's yes. your the continuing education program. Okay, so like a like an attorney really or an accounting professional, <laughs> you're you're actually yeah yeah you're actually staying on top of of all of those. And most of
2: g- the CEUs I sit through for a, on a regular basis, I'm sitting in a room with accountants and attorneys on a regular basis because. Especially with um, the compliance and ethics professional, because we're so entwined with those other areas within our field, we're usually sitting in the same room with them, um, um, going through the CEUs together to obtain the same information. But my lens is going to be different than their lens and in, in, in the application of it all.
1: That's so, so interesting. And I, I mean, this is something that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, companies are, are trying to figure out, right? Where do we put ESG in the organization? Well, ESG is three different, huge buckets of topics, right? So it's not, you know, your lawyers and your accountants are already doing a lot of governance work, your compliance professionals are doing a lot of governance work. It's not, it's not like a single title. You can, you can give someone, So I I say that as someone with an ESG in my title, but.
2: Um, Which is how, by I said at the beginning, it is interlaced among oh, yeah. everyone. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I was just going to say too, it, it's interesting that that the comp- the compliance seat is. You're suggesting that that's a really, a really natural place to put a lot of E and S and G uh, items because I have been hearing, of course. From attorneys, from clients across the board, right? This, uh, as these particular topics, specific material E and S topics for for companies, become more. I guess the scrutiny is is growing in terms of the disclosures and making sure the disclosures are up to snuff, that they're um, closer to a standard. Which I know there's there's a lot of work happening on that in the world of what that standard might be. That the latest SEC rule announcement about climate-related disclosures. And I think there's, I think, a growing interest and a need internally in organizations to prioritize looking at, oh, well, we're talking about this particular topic in our sustainability report. We're making claims about it. We're making future-looking statements about it. What policies do we have in place behind this? And where is it written down? And who's actually in charge? And I mean, most sophisticated companies are gonna have that for the for the major issues, but I think it's worth looking at from an audit from a compliance perspective. Which of these topics in our sustainability report are we really kind of talking a lot about? Which ones are potentially material to our to our stock price if we don't yet have a policy in place for something that's perhaps outside of the realm of the traditional? Governance and compliance, I guess requirements, then we need to think about getting serious about having something in place. So anyways, it's very it's very interesting that you're pointing out that the compliance and risk professionals are are, are those seats within an organization might be a a really great place to to have those responsibilities lie.
2: And I know that it's a lot of work already. and I, I've heard the discussion from both sides, right? For compliance professionals. This is one more thing that we're going to have to take ownership of. We're already dealing with data privacy regulations, you know, GDPR for those of us that, you know, work in industries that do business within the European Union. And, you know, there's all of these different things that as a compliance professional, we're in charge of, you know, and, and getting information for throughout the organization. But for me, because I have the environmental and social background and like, sign me up. Yes. (laughs) like I understand (laughs) this world because that's everything that I've been doing for over 15 years is the environmental and social aspect and looking at what policies impact when we roll out a policy, how does it impact our people? How does it impact our communities that we're serving? Or you know, what is the waste stream? what are our emissions? What policies are we implementing so we can reduce our water intake, you know and discharge? And so for me, it makes sense, but I understand both sides of the discussion of like this is another thing that we have to oversee, but I also think it makes sense because we're already monitoring, mitigating risks, identifying writing policies and and showing those impacts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to, you mentioned GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation in the EU. That's the EU, <laughs> Data Pro- Protection Privacy Laws. Yeah. I just like to make sure I spell out or catch the acronyms on the podcast. so hopefully I didn't miss ending today. He, I this has just been so great to chat with you. And I, like I said, you're the very rare, rare professional that truly has expertise in environmental social and governance. So I'm so so grateful to have had you on today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Just any any other final thoughts before
2: we wrap up? No, I just wanted to say thank you for having me on today, you know, I me mean, I any one of these topics I and we'll go into a deep dive in. Let's have a policy discussion to figure out how we can save the world. So thank you for keeping me on task today. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. I was like, let me know if you I might talk about, about environmental equity next. I One of my... Yeah, <laughs> it's, its, own... <laughs> it's a whole other episode. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> we could do a deep dive on that another (laughs) moment, but no, I appreciate you having me on today. Well, it's just been a pleasure having you on. I'm so grateful. We were
1: finally able to achieve, uh, achieve this. (laughs) And for listeners, we will include all the resources mentioned in our resource boost to this episode. And as always, we love to hear from you. Please let us know what you thought of the episode and feel free to get in touch via social media. Uh, with any other topics that you'd like to hear more about. Thank you so much.